Good morning. It's good to be with you. When I was growing up in Northern California, going to church, uh, we always had summer Bible camp, and that camp uh, was at a place called Sierra Bible Camp. And I would imagine, uh, especially in, in sharing those kinds of memories growing up with my wife, who went to a place called Camp Bandina, which I think was trying to replicate Israel or something in terms of aridness and all that, my camp experience was different. Um, and, and it was in the mountains, and there were streams and lakes and those kinds of things. And, and at night, it would always, even in the middle of the summer, it would get cool enough uh, for you to see your, your breath. Uh, and so it was one of those camps you had to bring a lot of clothes for because it would start out pretty cold in the morning and cold in the evening and warm up in the middle of the day. And you had to have some determination to ever get in water. Uh, it, was, it was cold, cold lakes and streams. And, but I have all kinds of important memories of experiences that would happen at that camp. Uh, one of my favorites was always the annual uh, camper and counselor softball game. And there was one year where miraculously I hit a, a game-winning home run. Uh, I promise it happened. But... <laughs> Uh, it was mainly because it was on the side of a mountain, and I hit it, and it kind of went down a hiking trail, and they couldn't find the ball, and so uh, we won. But my favorite memories of, of summer Bible camp, uh, we, we'd always have an evening uh, where we'd you know, build a campfire and have a talent show every single night, and the talent was always kind of questionable. But after that evening... Uh, of fun, we would always go over to this this meadow, and we would have a devotional. And we, we'd go together, we'd sit down, uh, we'd be quiet for a little while, and I would always kind of be thinking about the day that I'd had, the, the ups and the downs, the good things and the, the not-so-good things. And then at some point, somebody would start singing. And it was always a different member of the youth group. This these were not devos that our youth ministers led. These were devos that the kids led. And so we would start to sing, and one song would go uh, into the next, just blending seamlessly, different people leading the songs from different places in that meadow. And, and I always felt the presence of God in those devotionals. So much so that, that when they would end, and we would all kind of go back to our different cabins, and I, I would try to, to kind of walk by myself, to, to separate myself a little bit from the, the other kids. And, and there was this time in this, this quiet moment after those devotionals where I, I felt like God was walking right beside me. And the, the prayers that I would say in those moments were, were less like formal prayers uh, to, to somebody that's important, but they were more like conversations with a friend and I would thank God for my life, and I would thank God for my friends, and I would ask God to help me overcome struggles that I was having, and I would ask God to be with people in my life who, who were having struggles, and I would ask God to help me keep changing from who I was into who I knew God wanted me to be. And, and always in that, that short walk from the meadow to the cabin, this is the kind of prayerful conversation I would have, and then the second I would get to the cabin, that. They basically could hold about 20 people. Um, 
you know, the second I'd go in, into that cabin, the, the, the other guys were already they were having prank wars and they were talking about sports and, and all the things that had happened that day and the stuff they were hoping was going to happen the next day. And so immediately I would come crashing back into the real world. But it always seemed like about an hour later when we'd all quieted down and, and gone to our own bunks that there was this part of me that, that would go right back to the, the meadow and and the walk with God after the devotional, and I would try my hardest to get back to that place, and I never, I never could quite find a way back to that place. Now, you may not have grown up going to, to Bible camp, but my guess is that, that as believers, each of us has had at least one worship experience like that, where we feel close to God in a way that's difficult for us to explain. To talk about. And, and we feel God's presence, God's nearness in a way that helps us understand at a soul deep level that we are, we're called into relationship with someone who is greater than us, that we're called into something that's bigger than us, and that there's something amazing about that calling, that invitation to be close to the creator of of life, the creator of my life and your life and the world and everything in the world. We all have those kinds of experiences and, and we, we need them. I mean, they're like, they're like bread and water for the journey of, of the Christian life. We need these moments where God is undoubtedly near to our hearts and we are near to God's heart and something is happening there. Forgiveness and grace and hope and a future that we know we can't bring about on our own, but we can somehow believe in and then partner with God in bringing that future about, not just for us, but for other people in our lives that we care about, and even for people that we don't know or people that we have a hard time loving. We have this, this sense, and we, we respond to that in all kinds of different ways. You, you may not be a real touchy-feely person, and so you, you may not have had uh, goosebumps or tears in your eyes, or, or you may not have felt a whole lot of emotion at all except for you had this conviction. Those kinds of, of experiences are so important in the Christian life. They really are. They're... they're there's something that we desperately need. But the, the, the challenge is they're also addictive. And they can become something that makes it difficult for us, week in and week out, to really anticipate, look forward to, engage other kinds of worship experiences that aren't quite like the ones that we remember so well. I mean, this happens in other places in your life, right? You have an experience that becomes kind of the formative memory that this is what it feels like to be loved. This is what it feels like to have real hope. This is what it feels like to draw near to God. I have this kind of experience, and I need this kind of experience every single time I attend a worship gathering or I'm a part of a worship service. If you're like me, it, it means that you want to feel something, you want to believe that, that we're not just in this room with ourselves, but we are together with God in this life-changing way. You know, I, I, I really struggle on Sunday mornings because 
I, I want to I have a certain kind of experience. I want to somehow get back to that meadow at Sierra Bible Camp. And I got to tell you, most weeks that doesn't happen. One of the reasons it doesn't happen for me is one of the, the things in my life that has been crucial, central to worship is singing and being caught up in singing. It's really difficult for me to be caught up in singing when I'm checking them off as it's getting closer to the sermon and I'm calculating how many minutes I have left to make a break for it. <laughs> you know, Reese and I were talking last night. She's, she's having a, a struggle right now with, with being afraid of something that she feels like she should be able to do. And so we were talking about what it means to be brave and have courage. And I was talking to her and I said, you know, you, it's not courage when you just do something that's hard. It's courage when you do something that scares you and you say, I'm going to try to do that anyway. And she said, well, when do you get scared, Daddy? And I said, I get scared to death every Sunday morning. I am so scared that I don't sleep on Saturday nights very well at all. I have all kinds of different anxieties and fears. And, and it's not just silly fears like I might fall off the stage or... I might totally forget my sermon. It's that we won't hear from God today. Right? When we come and we try to listen to God's voice, that scares me. And it keeps me up at night. And I, tell, I told Reese last night, I, just, I, I say a prayer, and I get up, and I try my best. And Reese, I've never died preaching. Right? It's, I've, I've survived every time. And... And then it'll happen all over again next week where I'll be afraid. We have, we have a lot at stake when we come to worship. For me, singing is a really important way of encountering God that I don't, because of preaching, I don't really get to be as present as I want to be. You have reasons you're not as present as you want to be. I mean, I'm, I'm doubtful that you're super nervous that I'm going to do a horrible job. You might be dreading it, but you're probably not scared. But there's other things in your life that you brought with you this morning that make you scared and distracted, and they're getting in the way of this worship moment, right? This encounter. And one of the things that I think we have to, we have to start to wrestle with is, usually when we talk about worship— we end up talking far less about God and we talk more about us and what we hope worship will or won't be. We, we, I think, I believe we mean to talk about something deeper than this, but usually when I listen to us talk about worship, we use preference language. Like that's what's going to make worship good is if they sing the songs I like. And if the, the person who speaks over communion tells a story that I connect with and, and rushes through the weekly offering part because that's a part that makes me uncomfortable during worship. I'm not talking for myself right now, but these are the things I hear people say, right? That, that the, the sending, that the elder, when they get up and speak to us, that I feel close to that elder, that I, I feel like they love me and they care about me and they shepherd me, right? We, we're talking about something deeper than preferences, but it often sounds like preferences. And here's, here's the problem with that. 
as long as worship is mostly about our preferences, it cannot be about us opening ourselves up to God's preferences. And God's preferences are never just shallow desires. They're more like life-changing, life-saving dreams. And they're never just dreams for me and myself. They're dreams for you and me and us and the world. And God wants us to come to this place not looking to get our spiritual cravings met, but looking to be people who are open to whatever it is God is going to do to us and our hearts through this time. But if we're looking for something very narrow that proves to us, well, it was worth coming this time. right? And for you, it's something. I, I don't know what it is. For, for a lot of us, it might be that we get out on time. But for you, it might not be the singing. It might not be the sermon. It might be something else. Someone that you really need to see every week for this to feel like this is worship. That this is what you're, you're looking for and longing for. Whatever it is, we have to confess what those preferences are. And we have to ask for God to help us search for something deeper than that. To be open to something that's more life-changing than that. I have found that when we talk about worship, it tends to be that my preferences are convictions and yours are just your opinion. But why are we still talking about us? Why aren't we talking about the God that we come to encounter? Author Annie Dillard, in talking about worship, says at some point, you know, we, we approach the presence of God carelessly and, and haphazardly. It's like we don't understand what it is we're actually drawing close to. She says, it's like children playing blissfully unaware that a nuclear reactor is 10 feet away. That the power we draw close to in this time and in this moment, well, she says, we ought to be handing helmets out when you come in the door and there ought to be seatbelts in the pews. This isn't about us. This is about someone other than us, someone greater than us that's trying to speak to us from another place. As long as we're thinking about what we need to get out of this and order this for, for this to be a good worship service, I have a hard time believing that we're actually letting God be at the center of what we're doing. What is worship really? Open your Bibles up to, to Micah. The Old Testament prophet, starting in chapter 6, verse 6. The Old Testament prophets are almost always trying to remind the people of Israel who God is, what God has done, and, and what the normal believable, authentic response to that should be. So over and over again, the prophets will tell them their own story, a story that they should know. And there are always different facts and details that are are included, but one way or another, the prophet always says, God came to you when you were nothing and called you to be his people and rescued you and redeemed you. And this is how you respond to that? By letting yourself stay at the center of your own life, by by having a relationship with God that's all about you getting what you want from God. 
So in, in the first part of, of Micah chapter 6, that's the story that gets recounted. And speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, this is how Micah responds to that reminder. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How do I respond to this God who's given me everything? This is the response. He has shown all you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. They're amazing words. They're, they're beautiful words. They're wonderful, wonderful words. But when I hear them, I've got to be honest with you, I don't automatically think of these phrases describing a certain kind of corporate worship service. They seem like they're words that you would use to describe a certain kind of life. And I think that that's part of the point. I, I think that what Micah is wrestling with, what the people of Israel are wrestling with is... What does this relationship, what does this response to this God who has loved us and saved us and, and been good to us, this, this God whose love for us is stronger than our sins and our struggles and our shortcomings and our differences, this, this love that we have learned through experience saves us by changing us and that God isn't through changing us yet. How do we respond to that? And, and Micah's first question is, well, is there some sort of sacrifice that I could give to repay what God has done? Is there some sort of, of technical response that I need to give that would, that would make it where all of, all of that's repaid somehow, where it's, it's even? But he knows that that can't be true. We know that that can't be true. You don't repay the gift of someone giving their life for you by thinking about them every once in a while. You don't. You, you respond to someone giving their life for you by giving your life in return. And I think that's part of what, what Micah's trying to remind us, and Israel, and anybody who's tried to have a relationship with God. It's that you can't reduce it to this transaction where I needed something from God, and God, for whatever reason, loved me enough to give that thing to me, and so I need to, I'm obligated then to somehow express my thankfulness in a technical way that, that fits within categories that I can kind of control and make sure it doesn't have to take over my life. It's, it's very clear, and here it is, and this is how we're going to interact, and this is enough. Micah says no. It's a life. And, and I, I want you to know that that's, that's a crucial understanding for Christian people. That worship is not just something we do a couple of hours a week when we gather together in this room. That it is, in fact, a way of life. A way of life where you, you act justly and you love mercy and you walk humbly. 
That's, that's going to be a whole sermon series in itself at some point. It's important for us to know that worship is a way of life, that every single thing you do in your life, every moment of every day, it's, it's either an act of worship that declares that Christ is Lord of your life, or it's an act of worship that declares you're the Lord of your own life. And there is no in-between. There is no neutral. It's either that you're following Christ or you're following yourself. And too often, on accident, we turn worship into something that's mostly about us. And when we do that, whether we want to admit it or not, that means we're mostly worshiping us. And that's not Christian worship. That's idolatry. You can put a tie on it and have it on Sunday morning, but it's idolatry. So what... What do you, how do you respond? How do you live this life of worship? Well, that's where, see, this is the difficulty. And I hear it all the time when I talk to people. There's a part of us that wants to reduce our relationship to God to Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and, and whatever else we, we, we set aside to come before God in formal times of worship like this. Because it's easier to pull our life together and put on our Sunday best and maintain an image for a limited amount of time, and we've got to be honest, we're not just trying to maintain that image for other people in the pews, we're trying to maintain that image for God, as if God doesn't follow us home after service ends. And God doesn't hear the way we talk to one another when we're stressed out and angry, and God doesn't hear the way that we treat our children and our co-workers, and that all of that is not a part of our response to God, right? One temptation is to say, worship is confined to the temple. Worship is confined to the church building. But the other temptation is to say, okay, worship, formal times of worship don't matter at all because all of life is worship. And the struggle I have with that is human beings just aren't very good at making every moment special. If every moment's special, pretty soon it starts to feel like no moment's special. I, my dad, growing up, he always had this joke with my mother because he, he wasn't very... He's just not an affectionate guy. I've talked about that before, but that wasn't just something when it came to, to the way he, he would, you know, either hug us or not hug us. It was also just the way he talked. He, did, he didn't, my dad's not somebody who just, just pours compliments all over you. And not only that, my dad, until the last several years, just really wasn't comfortable saying, I love you. And so one of the things he would say to me and my sisters and my mother was, I told you once I loved you. If I change my mind, I'll, I'll let you know right? That doesn't feel too good. And there's a part of me that thinks when, when we start to say, look, all my life is worship and I'm just paying attention to God all the time. And that's fine, except for, I think it's about as true as like somebody saying, I'm not, I'm not athletic, but I'm just from this moment on, I'm just going to, I'm going to jog everywhere. I'm, I'm going to run marathons all the time with no training. I'm just going to go from this to that. Because what worship does formal times of worship. It helps us practice what it looks like to pay attention to God, to, play, to pay close attention to God. And we need, we need training in that. And we need to know how it feels because if we go from never paying attention to God all that much in our life to saying, okay, I'm going to pay attention to God all the time in my life and I'm always going to know that God's right beside me and near me and I'm going to invite God into every moment of my life, but we've never tried that out 
or we stop doing that in formal times like these, over time, I'm convinced we just don't have enough spiritual attention span to maintain that without ongoing times of engagement that are set aside to be shaped. We, we sing songs and we pray prayers and we do that together. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But one of the most important reasons is the way you make a life is through repetition. The way you make a life is through habit and pattern and structure. And it's so important for us to have that built in because, brothers and sisters, we are so for, we're so forgetful of what we say matters the most to us. And we say God matters the most to us. And we say God's imagination for the world and for everyone in our life matters the most to us. But in minutes of being here, we can start to forget. So we come back to remember, to pray and to sing and to open God's word, to believe that what God says is possible really is possible, to believe that who God says we can be, it's, it's the truth. We need training. We need special, sacred, set-apart times to be here. But these special set-apart times cannot replace the rest of our life and the rest of our relationship with God. And so it's a constant balance. It's a constant balance. So one of the things I, I want to say to you, because I, I think it's really important, is that we view our worship time together here not as a time for us to have all of our worship experience preferences fulfilled, we're here so that after we leave here, something will happen here that makes you more likely to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. Now, I, I'm telling you, I, those are not the phrases that I, I use right off the bat when I start evaluating how a worship service just went. Right, and I'll just confess for myself, I do that moment by moment throughout our worship service because I feel unduly responsible. And so I, I don't have phrases like that. My, my phrases are song selection, room energy, emotional engagement. Don't those sound fun? Right? Those are the phrases that first come to mind on, is this a good worship service or not? Did we pick songs that were thematically connected and yet stylistically diverse enough to, to reach the most amount of people? In other words, did you like at least one song and did one drive you crazy? Was, was the energy in the room warm and authentic and, you know, the, there was excitement and anticipation? And emotionally, did people feel connected? Did they feel welcome? Did they feel hopeful? Right? Those, are, those are all valid things to ask about a worship service. As long as you and I always remember, they're not, they're not the most important thing to ask about a worship service. You know, was the sermon good? No. It's average to middling. That's not the point, right? We can turn it into the point really easily. And what, what Mike is trying to say to us this morning is, if, if you're going to use phrases to talk about your formal times of worship together— Instead of worrying about whether or not the, the energy in the room was good, 
Did you do things during that time? Did you say prayers and sing songs and read scriptures and share stories that helped everyone in the room be a little bit more likely to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly? If you did that, it was a good worship service. I'm not good at, at having that be something that's at the core of what I'm thinking through when we gather together. And yet, Micah is saying to us this morning, if you end up going to a church where you mostly prefer everything they do, that doesn't require you to grow in any of these three areas. Right? It allows you to be a pretty self-focused Christian person who gets what you want out of the church you choose to go to. I don't know that that helps us grow much at all. In fact, it doesn't. It gets in the way. We start to think that what God wants for us is to meet all our preferences. I'm pretty sure that there's nowhere in Scripture where we're promised anything close to that. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Now, I want to say something to you real quick, uh, and then we're going to kind of reimagine what these look like. I, I don't think that our times of worship should be about us primarily uh, not just getting our needs met, but I don't, I don't think our spiritual needs met. I, and, and I don't think that, that you should come to church primarily in order to be impressed by something that happens here. Now, that's a, that's a fine line. We're going to talk about this a little more in this series, but, but here's what I want to say to you. I think sometimes that we view, depending on who we are, a, a really good sermon based on how many new ideas the preacher can tell you that you've never heard before. And it would help if there were three points, and, and you could take notes easily, and you could walk out of here, and because you have a sheet of notes that looks clean and organized and it all goes together— that now you're different. I struggle with that as a preacher because there's a constant temptation when I'm getting ready to preach to show off all the hard work I did all week and to talk about Greek and Hebrew and, and to find other places throughout all of Scripture where these phrases pop up or these words pop up and prove to you that I know how to use a concordance. Maybe you'd walk out of here and think, man, that guy's really smart. What good does that do any of us? And so part of the decisions I try to make when I, I get ready to preach is, how do I not make you feel like I'm smarter than you when it comes to listening to God's word? Is there a way for me to trim away stuff that might make you feel intimidated and feel like you can't? with good intent, open up God's word and encounter God? Is there a way that I can teach you how to read the Bible in a way that you could actually replicate in your own life, which would mean I don't come up with three random points that all start with L, and you think that that's exactly what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 4. The Bible is a place where God wants to speak to us, but the Bible is not some sort of corporate strategy plan for your life so that you can succeed and be happy and wealthy and wise. That's Ben Franklin. That's something else. That's not what the Bible is. 
And if I treat it that way, and I, I domesticate it that way, you might think that that's what it is. And so I worry about that. I want you sometimes to walk out of here confused. I, I want you to walk out of here and feel like the sermon was half done and that you're going to have a lot of work to do this week to figure out what the sermon's supposed to do to you, right? And that's hard because I'm a control freak and I want to tell you exactly what the sermon means and exactly what you should do with it. These are the kinds of decisions we need to make at every step of the way when we're planning worship. Not how does everything feel impressive and well, well put together and, and you're thinking, goodness, this is amazing. This is, I, we don't come here for any of that. We come here to have God become the king of our life once again if somehow in the last seven days we replaced him on the throne of our lives. That's what we come here for. We come here to learn how to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Okay, so what do those look like? Now I'm going to have three points. <laughs> but it's Micah's fault. It's not mine. So three points, right? Now the problem with these three points is they sound really good and they're poetic, but the struggle is that means they're usually pretty much abstract, or at least in my life they've been pretty abstract. They sound good, but I don't really know what they look like in my own life. So I struggled this week about, okay, if I were going to put these words into my own words, what would they sound like? So let's start. Act justly. It's not just some vague sense of do the right thing. It's not even try to do whatever you can to make the world fair for everybody because who defines fair and, and what does that look like? And so that starts to get difficult. And even though the word justice is there, in Scripture, as you read the word justice, you find that it's not just limited to courtroom decisions. In fact, it's always much bigger than that. It includes courtroom decisions, but it's actually my decision and your decision to take care of people who are defenseless against the world. It's, it's, it's making the world right again. So if I were going to put act justly into my own words, I'd say something like this. Take care of everyone, especially in times of need. Which makes the weekly offering one of the most important things we do here. It's not just something we do to keep the lights on. It's not just something we do because we have to and it's a necessary evil. It is an act of worship where we are willing, through the ways God has blessed us, to give sacrificially in ways that God is calling us to, in a world where we know people are still in desperate need in all kinds of different ways, that we want to be a community that asks one another to do whatever we can to take care of everyone. That's what it means to act justly. Now, I reserve the right to, to revise these in the future. This is how I'm understanding them right now. I want us to be a church that in this time, when we're worshiping, we give each other the opportunity to live this way in here so there's a better chance we're going to figure out how to learn, live that way out there. Act justly. Okay. Love mercy. This isn't just talking about having warm, fuzzy feelings about the concept of God's mercy for us. The word love in Scripture is never just an emotion. It is always an intentional set of actions that give worth to someone else, that give value to someone else. That's how you love someone in Scripture. Emotions are present in that kind of love, but emotions 
don't make that kind of love possible, and emotions don't drive that kind of love. In fact, often our emotions get in the way of that kind of love. And in my life, most often, the act of love looks like an act of mercy. Right? That I, I would be somebody who, who, for the people in my life who make mistakes and, and slip up and betray me and them, themselves, and we don't know what to do, and it's hard for us to find a way forward, that I would then make the decision not to feel, but to do something beyond that failure. So if I were going to say this one of my own words, I would say that we want to be people who imagine a better future for everyone, especially in times of failure. There are people in this room, there are people in your life, there are people in your family who feel like they are defined by their failures, that that isn't just something they did or failed to do, it's who they actually are. It's who they've become. They're the sum total of all the things they regret. And what they need is a community full of people that say, those things are true about you. Those things are in your life, but we refuse to define you by those things. We call you by a different name. Because you are a loved, dear child of God. And we will treat you that way. We will see you that way. Can we imagine a better future for other people in our lives, especially in moments of failure? Okay, and... Than this idea of walking humbly. It's not, it's not being a, a doormat that everybody gets to walk over. It's, it's not never standing up for what's right when people are, are taking advantage of other people. It's not, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's not looking down on yourself. It's not walking through your life with your head low and your shoulders slumped. That's not what walking humbly means. Walking humbly in scripture is the realization that there is a God and you are not him. And that this God, because of giving you the gift of life and then giving you the gift of grace, is constantly earning the right to call you to the work that God has for you. Usually that work is something that's going to cost you something dearly. Always that work is something that's going to give you a life worth living. Right, so what does it mean to walk humbly with God? How would we say that? Well, I think I'd say it this way, that we would embrace God's kingdom agenda for everyone, especially in times of opportunity. The reason I say in times of opportunity is that's when we're at most risk of ignoring God. It's not when we desperately need God and we don't know what else to do and we don't know where else to turn. We know we need God then. It's when we feel, feel full of confidence and wisdom and we know exactly what needs to happen next and we have this opportunity, we have this chance to do something, to achieve something, to have undeniable success and we start to, to do whatever we can to reach that success and people become less like people and they become more like pawns in our own game and we're doing whatever we can to get wherever we we can, and if we're not careful, we start to take advantage of other people, and we victimize other people, and we oppress other people. And of all the things we could say about the kingdom of God, and all the things I don't yet know about the kingdom of God, I can tell you this much. The kingdom agenda is never to hurt or victimize or oppress anyone. And when we start thinking that what God is asking us to do is to take over for his sake, and to do whatever it takes to take over for his sake— 
you can believe we're going to do some awful things trying to do the right thing. We're going to say some awful things trying to do the right thing. We're, we're going to lose our way because in the end, what we're going to do is take our own selfish agendas and dress them up like a kingdom agenda, and that never, ever works. And the world knows the difference between God and Christians who are more full of themselves than the Spirit of Christ. There is a God, and it's not me. It's not you. And, and it's, it's not that we should have no direction in life or, or even have an agenda. It's that our agenda should be God's agenda, that we need to submit what we want to what God wants, even if we don't understand it, even if it doesn't make all the sense we want it to, we trust. So when you think about our, our weekly services, I'm begging you, go deeper than the song selection and the room energy and the emotional engagement. And ask yourself, in this time together, were you encouraged, were you called, were you challenged? Were you given an opportunity to to try to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? Because if we'll do it in here every single week, brothers and sisters, there's a much higher likelihood that we'll be able to sustain that out there all week. But if we come here and we settle for songs we like, and prayers that are comfortable, and reading passages in Scripture the way we always have. I I don't know what we're doing here. But if we'll come and we'll say, you know what, the weekly offering is a place where I get to act out the same self-giving love that God has called me to. I get a chance here. And it's not going to stop here. It's going to start here. And, and then if, if I think about communion as the place where every week I encounter this, this mercy that is undeserved, and yet I'm welcome at this table, but the catch is also that you're welcome at this table. No matter what kind of week you've had, you're welcome at this table too. And I've got to find a way to sit at the table with you and not think hateful thoughts about you. And then maybe that's going to change other meals in the week and how I see people and treat people. And then if I'll just be reminded of who I actually am in the grand scheme of things, that I'm important enough for God to send his one and only son to die for me, but I'm not important enough to force my way on you. I'm not important enough to say I and I alone know what's right and I don't have to listen to you but that I come to Scripture expecting to be questioned, that I come to Scripture expecting to be challenged, that I come to Scripture expecting to be changed, that I make the confession at some point in this service that I don't have it all figured out and I need your help and I need this community. And it's because I'm not able to do this through sheer force of will and intelligence and giftedness and whatever else it is we bring in here with us. We confess who we are. We are people who are broken and we are people who have been redeemed. And so we love not only the grace we've been shown, but we love the grace we get to show, even if it's the hardest thing we've ever done before. When you come here next week, I hope these will be the questions we ask. When you leave this morning, I hope these will be the questions you ask. When we wonder, is this time well spent? 
Is this time something where we have faithfully encountered the God who calls us to this place and calls us to something more and will never, ever give up on us? Worship is not an act of image management. Worship is not an act of preferences being fulfilled. Worship is an act of complete and total surrender to a God who we believe knows what we need more than we do. Surrender. In a world where that's the last thing any of us ever wants to do, that's what worship is, it's surrender. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives are going to be in various places throughout this auditorium to receive you and pray with you. I'm going to ask those couples, if they would, to stand up just so you can see them briefly. Uh, they care about you. They, they, they want to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly beside you. So if you came this morning with any need at all, go to them as together we stand and sing.